0: Psalm 72. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He will judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with justice. The mountain shall bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. He will judge the poor of the people He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee while the sun endureth and so long as the moon throughout all generations. He will come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. In his day shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon be no more. He shall have dominion also from the sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall render tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him, for he will deliver the needy when he crieth, and the poor that hath no helper. He will have pity on the poor and needy, and the souls of the needy he will save. He will redeem their soul from oppression and violence, and precious will their blood be in his sight. And they shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba, and men shall Pray for him continually. They shall bless him all the day long. There shall be abundance of grain in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him happy. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16 and 17 and verse 20. Revelation 22, verse 16 and 17 and verse 20. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things for the churches, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright, the morning star, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And he that heareth, let him say, come. And he that is athirst, let him come. He that will, let him take the water of life freely. He who testifieth these things saith, Yea, I come quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Shall we just bow one further word of prayer? Dear Lord, we are so thankful that we can turn to Thee in this simple way. We have already committed ourselves to Thee. And all we want to acknowledge, Lord, that is that, is that apart from Thee in speaking or in hearing, we can do nothing. Dear Lord, be all that we need in this time. Breathe upon Thy Word and make it live. And grant that this tremendous subject, Lord, Thy Holy Spirit will take hold of it and somehow deposit something in our hearts that will be forever. And this we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. The title that I have been given for this evening's address is Footprints of the Messiah. Footprints of the Messiah. And uh, that's a tremendous subject. And um, I fear very, very greatly our time uh, limit um, to be able to do justice to a subject so tremendous as this. Originally, I was asked if I would speak of The um, Messiah as we find him in the Bible. The prophecies concerning the Messiah. Um, What a tremendous subject then we have for this evening. I want to talk first about the promise of the coming and glorious reign of the Messiah. And then I would like to say something about the promise of salvation, the suffering Messiah... And then I would like to say something about the Messiah and Israel. All Israel saved. In perhaps some of the most beautiful words that he ever uttered, and of most of the human writers in the Old Testament, perhaps from his lips came Many, many beautiful words. But amongst the most beautiful words that King David ever uttered, we have the record of his dying words in 2 Samuel and chapter 23. And this is what we read. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, saith, and the man who was raised on high, saith, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was upon my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. There will come one that ruleth over men righteously, that ruleth in the fear of God. He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springeth out of the earth through clear shining after rain. Verily, my house is not so with God. Yet He hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For it is all my salvation and all my desire, although He maketh it not to grow." The psalmist said in Psalm 89, in verses, um, if you can find it, uh, 19, from verse 19 to 24, this is Ethan, the Ezraite, not David. This is what he said, Then thou spakest in vision to thy saints, and said. I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him with whom my hand shall be established, mine arm also shall strengthen him, the enemy shall not exact from him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him, and I will beat down his adversaries before him and smite them that hate him, but my faithfulness and my loving kindness shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. And then from verse 34, my covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness, I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon, and as the faithful witness in the sky. The word Messiah, Mashiach, in Hebrew, just means anointed one. And Christ Christos, the Greek word that we get our anglicized Christ from, is just the Greek equivalent. Both Messiah and Christ mean anointed one. And here in this psalm, uh, we are told, I have found David my son, with my holy oil have I anointed him. Anointed one. This promise of a king messiah of a Messiah King, is everywhere in the Bible, from beginning to end. At first it is not so apparent, it is not so clear, but as we go on through the Word, we find it becomes clearer, and clearer, and clearer. The concept of a Messiah King is in fact unique to Judaism and Christianity. There is not another religion or faith in the world that has this concept of a deliverer, of a righteous ruler, of a king that will come to set up a kingdom in which all will be righteousness, justice, peace, and mercy. In this, Both the Jew and the Christian are united. In fact, in Orthodox prayer, in the Jewish creed, um, produced or conceived by Maimonides, these words are found I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah. And though he tarry, I will wait daily for his coming. Now we haven't got enough time this evening really to do this kind of subject justice. And we can only take a bird's eye view um, of this uh, matter. But let me say something first about the promise of the coming and glorious reign of this anointed one. First, of course, we find it in Genesis, in chapter 3, and verse 15. I think it's known to probably every person here in this place this evening. Here it is, it is the words of God uh, to the serpent. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman... And between thy seed and her seed, he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now whether it is Christian scholar or Jewish scholar, everybody agrees that this promise of God is the watershed of all messianic prophecy. It began with this veiled, not very clear promise of someone who would be born of a woman, but who would crush the head of the powers of darkness, but who in turn would be wounded by the powers of darkness, but who finally would bring redemption and salvation to humanity. If we go over the scriptures, I hope you've got your Bible with you. We come to Numbers and chapter 24 and um, verse 15. And we read these words. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor says, and the man whose eye was closed says, He says, who heareth the words of God and knoweth the knowledge of the Most High, who seeth the vision of the Almighty, falling down and having his eyes open, I see him, but not now, I behold him, but not nigh, there shall come forth a star out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite through the corners of Moab, and break down all the sons of Tumult, and Edom shall be a possession, and so on. A star out of Jacob, and a scepter out of Israel. It is, of course, a reference to David who in fact did take Moab and did take Edom and did take very much else that was in this prophecy of Balaam. But beyond David is David's greater son. And then we have the same thing again in Genesis chapter 49. Now this really is, I'm afraid, a Bible study, but it's good, isn't it? I hope you've got your Bibles with you. Genesis 49 and verse 10 to 12. Here are the words of Jacob as he prophesied on his deathbed concerning his sons. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the obedience of the peoples be. Now some of you in your uh, more modern versions will have, till he come, in place of until Shiloh come, until he come whose right It is to reign. And actually you have the same phrase in Hebrew if you want to look at it, those of you who understand Hebrew, in Ezekiel and chapter 21 and verse 27. Here it is. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. This also shall be no more until he come, whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Shiloh. Now again, Jewish and Christian scholars are quite united on this matter, that is the orthodox, the believing, um, on the fact that we have a messianic promise here. Not only is a star to come out of Jacob and a scepter in Israel, but it is now narrowed down to Judah, to the tribe of Judah. And we're told that the royal house will never depart from the tribe of Judah until He comes whose right it is. And unto him uh, the obedience of the peoples will be. Let us go on. I'm sorry to be so quick, but (laughs) you've got to watch the time. In Hosea, and uh, chapter 3, and verse... uh, um, Hosea, if you can find it. Chapter 3. Verse 5, Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and shall come with fear unto the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now this prophecy was given after the death of David. So here we have a very interesting thing. We're told that they shall come to David their king. We have the same thing again. If you want to make a note of it, in Ezekiel and 34, Ezekiel 34, And uh, verse 23 and 24, this is how it reads. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it. This is the prophecy of Ezekiel many, many centuries after David. Now, my point is this, we find first of all then is a star out of Jacob, scepter out of Israel. Secondly, we found that it is the, royal tribe, of, it is the tribe of Judah. The royal house will not depart from it until he comes. Thirdly, we discover it is within the, the, the tribe of Judah, the house of David, that the Messiah should come from. Now if you will turn to the little prophet of Micah in chapter 5 and verse 2, we have this remarkable little prophecy. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, which art little to be among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall one come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she who travaileth hath brought forth. Then the residue of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, and he shall stand and shall feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth, and this man shall be our peace. The prophecy of Micah. Now we come to another discovery. We find that this Messiah is not only to come out of Jacob, out of Israel, not only from the tribe of Judah, not only from the house of um, uh, David, but he is to come, he is to be born in Bethlehem. We have come to a fifth discovery about the Messiah. But even more remarkable for the first time, at least in in the scriptures I'm giving to you, In sequence, we have an inference that he is not just born of a woman. He has not just come into being, as it were, at birth, at natural birth. We are told, whose goings shall be from of old, from everlasting. What a strange, mysterious reference to the person of the Messiah. He has a pre-existence. It seems that he was before he was born. Isn't that quite remarkable? Now we go on. I'm afraid I can't stop with the problems that some of these arise. To Isaiah, to raise to Isaiah and chapter 9. Isaiah and chapter 9. And verse 1 and 2. And verse 6 and 7. Very well known ones. But there shall be no gloom to her that was in anguish. In the former time he hath brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time hath he made it glorious by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time even forever." The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now here we find some other quite remarkable things. First of all, this messianic person, this messianic being is to be connected with Galilee. And we have a reference to a famous motorway, ancient trade route, the Via Maris, the way of the sea. Now it is quite remarkable that Jesus was lived 30 years of his life in Nazareth, just above the Via Maris, and spent the three years of his ministry based in Capernaum, just next to the Via Maris. Galilee, by the way of the sea, Galilee of the nations. Even more remarkable is this extraordinary prophecy for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder no problem his name shall be called wonderful counsellor no problem mighty God everlasting father there we have our problem prince of peace no problem Mighty God, Everlasting Father. However much we squirm to get out of this, we cannot. We're told that this isn't any reference to a divine being. Yet, if you take the same prophet Isaiah and look at chapter 28 and verse 29, for those of you who know any Hebrew, you will find that you have the exact same phrase in Isaiah 28, verse 29 This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel. And here we have the same phrase used of God himself, wonderful counselor. Take the phrase, mighty God. Look at Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 21. And we have the same phrase again. A remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. It is exactly the same phrase. So here we have an incredible prophecy. Micah said, whose goings are from of old, from everlasting. Now we have something even more remarkable. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The child is born. The son is given. We have two two amazing things in one person. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Hansi said this afternoon that listening to one of the American astronauts, he said, you know, we had one single aim to walk on the moon. And then she said, and God has had one single aim to walk on the earth. Two amazing things that we shall never understand. We're often told that God uses the plural in scripture of himself, let us make man in our image, because it is the royal we. But I wonder whether the royal we came from God's usage of it. What does it mean? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Is it not interesting? if we believe in the authority and inspiration of the Word of God, that right at the very beginning of the book we have an intimation of something beyond us. It is not that we are saying that God has three heads, but we are saying that the infinite creator of the universe is far and away beyond our finite minds to understand. And in his being, he comes to us as Father Son and Holy Spirit. Now we won't go any further into that or we shall get into problems. But look again at a few more scriptures. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Uh, Behold a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this is interesting again. Why? For this simple reason. That um, I am told, and quite rightly, that the Hebrew doesn't say virgin, it says young woman. And there's been a great controversy in Christian circles over some of the modern versions that have said, behold, a young woman shall conceive. But what kind of sign is it it if a young woman conceives? Use your head. Most young women that are married conceive and bear a child. It's quite a normal thing, so what's the sign? Surely it means that the young woman's a virgin. There's something very unusual about this birth. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So someone says, well, that's not so remarkable. I mean, Emmanuel's a good name. It just means God is with us. But what is the sign about that? The interesting thing is, Ahaz's wives never did bear a son. And they never did call him Emmanuel. Well, those who are liberal in their outlook upon Scripture, they won't have any problem over this. they say, well, there you are. See, it's a little thing that Isaiah said out of his head. It never came to pass. But those who believe in the inspiration and authority of God's word might well wonder how come he has never had a son called Emmanuel. So what is the problem? The problem is this, surely, that he can't just mean... God is behind the nation, God is with the nation, God is blessing the nation. He'd always been blessing this people from the time he chose and selected Abraham. Right the way through, there was nothing unusual about that. Even in their sin, God had been with them. There was nothing remarkable about that. But if this son born to this young woman who was a virgin is a sign... His name is Emmanuel, meaning that somehow or other God Himself is breaking into human history. Then I understand the whole thing. I begin to understand, here we have a sign. So now let us cap. We capped for a moment. We found the Messiah is to come as a star out of Jacob, a scepter out of Israel. We found that he is to be, it is to be Judah, the tribe of Judah. The royal house will not depart from Judah until the Messiah comes. The third thing we found is it's the royal house of David, the house of David within the tribe of Judah. Then the, the fourth thing was we've discovered that it is to be in Bethlehem uh, that he is to be born. And the fifth thing we've discovered is that he, his life, his human life, will have something to do with Galilee and something to do with the way of the sea, the Via Maris. The sixth thing we've discovered is that there is a mystery in his person. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We have discovered that his birth will be unique. A young woman, a virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and it will be God breaking into human history. Now, I say, all this is quite remarkable. And if we look at the same prophecy, chapter uh, in Isaiah, chapter 8 and verse 14, this is what we read after just a few verses before the word Emmanuel has come. This is what the prophet says, And he, this Emmanuel, shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a jinn and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble thereon and fall, and be broken, and be snared, and be taken. The coming of this Messiah, this remarkable person, will in fact not be universally acceptable, but will bring about a division within the nation. He will become a trap to some, a snare to others, a rock upon which people trip and fall. And then it goes on, Bind thou up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I, And the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwelleth in Mount Zion. There is another remarkable reference. By the way, how can this Messiah, if he's just a human being, be a sanctuary? It is a very, very interesting phrase. Many, many years later, Jesus said of his body, destroy this body, this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And we as believers, saved by the grace of God, know what it is to have found that Jesus is the sanctuary. He is the house of God. We have become living stones built up in him, finding our relationship to one another. But here is another remarkable thing. I'm sorry to have to rush, but you can understand on time. Now I hope it's not too much for you. In Psalm 2 and verse 7, here is a psalm that is recognized by all Jewish and Christian sources as a messianic psalm. Listen to this. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said unto me, Thou art my son." This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance and the outermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a the rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. No problem there. This could be a, a, a human being. No problem. But then we come to verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish in the way for his wrath will soon be kindled. Blessed are all they that take refuge in him. Now I suggest that this verse has never been satisfactorily interpreted or expounded, explained, unless we see the mystery of the person of the Messiah. Now, coming all this, we've covered a whole lot of scriptures in rather a short (laughs) <laughs> amount of time. And there are many more. But here is a sample of scriptures about the coming and glorious reign of the Messiah. I think it's best summed up in Isaiah and chapter 11, from verse 1 to 10. I will read it all. Listen Isaiah 11. And there shall come forth a shoot out of the stock of Jesse, David's father, King David's father, and a branch out of his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither decide after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his waist and faithfulness the girdle of his loin and the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them and the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it shall come to pass in that day that the root of Jesse, that standeth for an ensign of the peoples, unto him shall the nations seek and his resting place shall be glorious. Now I already read Psalm 72 which is another marvelous messianic psalm on the same level. Speaking virtually of the same thing. The universal reign and kingdom of the Messiah. What a wonderful thing then it all is when we really think about it. Now I want to suggest that all this has been so gloriously fulfilled in Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born of a virgin. He was born of the royal seed. We have both genealogies in the New Testament. Now it is a most interesting thing that in the Talmud, in one of the Sanhedrin writings, it's speaking of Jesus, not in an unpleasant way, but not in a sympathetic way. It says, Jesus, who was of the royal seed. Even more remarkable, the Pharisees and the scribes could have demolished the reputation of Jesus with a single blow since the genealogies were then extant within the courts of the Sanhedrin. But never once, not even in his trial, in spite of the fact that people referred to him as Son of David and called to him as Son of David, In spite of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem when they cut down the palm branches and hailed him as David's son of the royal seed, they never once sought to disprove his claim that he was of the royal seed. Born of the house of David, born from the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem. What more shall we say? We know the circumstances of his birth were mysterious. We know that the signs and wonders he did were remarkable. Either he was a fraud, a charlatan of the very first order, or what he said was true. I and the Father are one. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. We cannot get beyond the claims of Jesus. I am the bread of life. He that feedeth upon me shall live forever. Before Abraham was, I am. What a claim. I am the door By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in, and shall go out, and shall find pasture. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Can this be the words of a fraud? Or are they true words of the Messiah? Now we must go on there is one other thing I would like to say about Jesus and it is this and I believe it is one of the most telling pieces of evidence. The Old Testament says again and again in not one place but in a a number of places that when this Messiah comes the Gentiles will seek him. All the nations will come to him. Of all the great figures of Jewish antiquity there is no one to whom the Gentiles have sought as they have sought for Jesus the Jew. He has been sought by nearly every nation of the earth and all through the tongues and kindreds and peoples of the earth there are those who have been saved by His work, who have called upon His name and who know Him as their Savior. Well, I must move on. What about the promise of salvation? You see, it is a very interesting thing that the Bible does not only have the one side, this promise of the coming and glorious reign of the Messiah, but it has the other side, which is the suffering Savior, the promise of a suffering Savior. If you turn to Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, and chapter 9, and verse 9, we read these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass, even upon the colt of an ass. Even the rabbis have made comment on this scripture. This does not seem to be the Messiah that Daniel spoke of. For Daniel said this. Am I going too fast for you all? Daniel and chapter um, 7 and verse 13. Listen, I saw in the night visions and behold there came with the clouds of heaven one like unto a son of man. And he came even to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Now the rabbi said, this is very strange. Here we have the triumphant, glorious coming of the Messiah in the clouds of heaven. But Zechariah says he will come riding on the foal of an ass, lowly. And so one of the rabbis said, if we are worthy, he will come on the clouds of heaven. But if we are not he will come lowly and riding upon the foal of an ass. It was the only explanation. <laughs> oh, it may seem funny to you, but in fact it's not really. It was the only explanation that they could, could come to, that there must be some... They saw that there was a difference. The Messiah was coming, but they couldn't connect the two things. They seemed to be quite different. Now, the prophet, promise of a suffering Savior is the other strand of messianic prophecy. For instance, take Jeremiah and chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23 and uh, verse 5 and 6. Are you still with us? Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land in his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely and this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness speaking of a king speaking of the Messiah his name shall be the Lord our righteousness now how can we exactly call a human being the Lord our righteousness unless it's just literally a name Giving glory to God. But we know the Messiah as the Lord, our righteousness. He is our only righteousness. There is no other way to be justified before God. We understand in this prophecy that somehow or other he's coming to save us. Not merely to deliver us from the oppression of of occupying forces, of political forces, of military forces. But to do something about bondage to sin. To save us from the thing that has destroyed us. Look again, if you want, at Isaiah chapter 45. And uh, verse, uh, um, Isaiah 45, verse 22 to 25. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. By myself have I sworn, the word is gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Only in the Lord it is said of me is righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all they that were incensed against him shall be put to shame. Isn't that interesting? All they that were incensed against him shall be put to shame. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. A promise of salvation. Listen again. It says, Every knee shall bow to him, every tongue shall swear. All men shall come to him and those that were incensed against him, they also shall come. How remarkable. Look again, Isaiah 49, and verse 5 to 8. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, and that Israel be gathered unto him, for I am honourable in the eyes of the Lord, and my God is become my strength. Yea, he saith, it is too light a thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. What an amazing messianic promise. It is too light a thing that you should be the salvation of my people Israel. I will give thee as a light for the Gentiles. Thou shalt be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now all this I suppose in one way is, is, is known to us. We know what it is to be saved. We know what it is to have tasted the salvation of God. But oh, how amazing it is that in in those early days, this side of messianic prophecy was often overlooked. The glory of his reign, the power of his reign, the extent of his reign, the political nature of his reign was understood, but the saving work of the Messiah, that somehow or other was not so clearly seen. It was touched upon, It wasn't ignored totally, but it was not so clearly seen. Now, the point is this. If he is to be the salvation of God to the ends of the earth, if in him the seed of Israel is to be justified, how? How? And here you come to the heart of this other side of messianic prophecy. Listen to this amazing prophecy of Daniel. I wish we had time to really go into this, but you'll probably all be asleep. Um, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. These, this mysterious prediction of Daniel, 70 weeks are decreed upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish transgression, To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and discern that from the going forth of the commandment. To restore and to build Jerusalem unto the anointed one. The Messiah. The prince shall be seven weeks. And three score and two weeks. It shall be built again. With street and moat, even in troublous times, and after threescore and two weeks shall the anointed one be cut off, and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And even unto the end shall there be war. Desolations are determined. And he shall make a firm covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And upon the wing of abomination shall come one that maketh desolate even unto the full end. And that determined shall wrath be poured out upon the desolate. What an extraordinary prophecy. Now both rabbinic circles and Christian circles are all agreed that these weeks are years. They are days that are equivalent to years. So we have three periods of time. Seven weeks, 49 years. Then we have 62 weeks, 434 years. And then we have seven days, seven years. Now isn't this interesting? Now I know people get terribly steamed up on this business. Because we have to be honest about this, that uh, when we really try to find where exactly when it begins, we ought to go back to the Edict of Cyrus. Well, that was 536 before Christ. Unless we, some of you here, and he used to speak in this place, take Anstis, uh, um chronology, and he says they're 82 years out anyway. Uh, the Ptolemaic uh, reckoning was out by 82 years, so that would probably bring it within um, thing. But never mind, never mind. We have a period of seven weeks. Seven is always a period of fullness. In this period, Jerusalem is to be rebuilt, and the temple rebuilt, and the walls, and the people repopulate the land. Then, after that, there will be a period of 62 weeks. Some 400 years. Now, isn't it interesting that the whole of biblical history falls into periods of 400 400 years they were in Egypt. After that, 400 years between then and the coming of the king. After that, there was 400 years between the um, rebuilding of the city and the coming of the Messiah. You would get it again and again and again, never mind. The point is this. You've got two periods of time. The city was rebuilt. The The temple was rebuilt. The walls were rebuilt. The land was repopulated. Okay? Then we had that next period. Shall we say 400 years? Right? without being pedantic. (laughs) And then we're told the Messiah should come. Now, this is very interesting. The Messiah shall come. Now, one of the rabbis said, there are 2,000 years without Torah, that is, without law. There are 2,000 years with Torah, that is, with the law. And then there are 2,000 years of Messiah. Now, isn't that interesting? Because it means that somewhere about the time Jesus was born, the Messiah was supposed to come. (laughs) And the other very interesting thing is this, that this became such a problem to some of the rabbis that they actually said, because of the sins of the people, the Messiah was taken into heaven where he is at present until he shall return. What does it mean the Messiah shall be cut off? He shall be cut off. What does it mean? It says he shall finish transgression, make an end of sins, make reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy. And then he shall be cut off and because he is cut off, the holy city and the temple shall be destroyed, and there shall be war to the end. In the middle of the seven days, of the middle of the week of the Messiah, oh, now, I can't go into it all. We just haven't got time, and you'll never get home. But, um, just let me say this because it's so interesting. I want to get to the root of the matter. The fact is that Daniel gave and was given a most remarkable outline of human history to the coming of the Messiah and the fact of the matter is it's been fulfilled. This cutting off of the Messiah is the thing that interests me. Now come back to the Old Testament again. Look at Psalm 22. Is there anything more remarkable than the 22nd Psalm? I don't think so. For we have in the Bible eyewitness accounts of the death of Jesus in the Gospels. But all these eyewitness accounts are from the eye, through the eyes of spectators. This psalm, written even if you take liberal interpretation of scripture which I don't even if you take that was written written at least 200 years before the Messiah, before Jesus died and here you have a description of Calvary from the eyes of the crucified one there is no more vivid description of the events that took place at Calvary in the whole Bible than in the 22nd Psalm Do I need to read it to you? I think most of you will know it and it will save time, but surely it is a most remarkable thing. When you read things like, um, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint, a perfect description, a perfect description of crucifixion. They gape upon me with their mouth as a ravening and roaring lion. Then he goes on, my heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death, the dehydration, of crucifixion. Dogs have compassed me; a company of evil doers have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may count all my bones. They look and stare upon me. When did King David have an uh, have an experience like that? We have no such record. We don't know when his feet and hands were pierced. But those who have a little problem about the piercing, let me turn you to the prophet Zechariah. And here there is no problem with all our Jewish commentators on this matter. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 it says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look unto me whom they have pierced. So remarkable was this, and so was it understood as messianic, that some of the rabbis evolved the most incredible doctrine. And it was this, that there are two messiahs. The first is Messiah, son of Joseph. This messiah will die, and he will die for the sins of the people. And he will die on the battlefield. Pierce. And the second Messiah is the Messiah, son of David, who shall come and shall raise the first Messiah. And then will bring in the kingdom of God with great glory. Now, this is most interesting because in my estimation, it would be much easier, a more simple explanation to think that both these... Two strands of the glory of the Messiah and the reign of the Messiah and the death and suffering of the Messiah are in fact centered in one Messiah. And it is even more remarkable if we see Jesus as Messiah because he brings all these together in himself. Born in Bethlehem, born of the royal house of David, of Judah. He did die. He was buried. He was raised on the third day and 40 days afterwards ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father and obtained the promise of the Holy Spirit and poured forth the Holy Spirit and is going to come again in the same way that he was taken. Praise God. Then he will come on the clouds with great glory and power and every eye shall see him. Well, isn't it all amazing? Of course, I haven't even turned you to Isaiah chapter 53. <laughs> I suppose you're all waiting for me to come to that. You must know that's the a messianic prophecy. They say that this prophecy sometimes was to do with Israel. But it seems very strange if Israel was wounded for our sins and, and uh, uh, for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, doesn't it? Most of the rabbis accept that Israel was in fact exiled because of transgression. I think it is much more likely if we read from Isaiah 52 and verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal wisely. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. Like as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. I'm sure that we see in this the most amazing prediction of the suffering Messiah. Surely, it says, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. This word, smitten, is the word in Hebrew for leprosy. And this is why a number of the rabbis in ancient days said a title of the Messiah is leprous. Isn't that remarkable? He bore our sicknesses and illnesses. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes. We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. we've turned every everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him. The iniquity of us all. And then we come perhaps to as remarkable a prophecy concerning the suffering Messiah as any in the Bible. He was a oppressed, yet when he was afflicted he opened not his mouth. As a lamb that is led to the slaughter and as a sheep that before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who among them considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Now don't you think that is all quite remarkable? I know many of you know these scriptures so well. But when you bring them together, is it not incredible? Here we have the prediction of of the suffering Messiah. How does he justify? Well, listen. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by the knowledge of himself shall my righteous servant justify many. And then it goes on. Yet he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I find all this quite, remarkable and when I see this footprints of the Messiah I see right away way through scripture a way beginning in Genesis seemingly two strands but they're not they're different movements of one symphony Psalm 110 says this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. Oh, thank God. This Messiah, crucified, buried, raised on the third day, has ascended to heaven where he is enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, waiting till he shall come back with great power and glory. Well, I find all that marvelous. Footprints of the Messiah. Oh, I just don't understand how anyone can disbelieve. I don't know why people aren't queuing up. Uh, to be saved, really, I, I find it all so exciting, so thrilling. People seem to think it's, well, you know, Bibles full of legends and myths. and so You can't rely upon it, it's irrelevant. But really, I, I, to me, it is so amazing, the accuracy and relevance of God's Word. Now I want to, for the last few moments, speak on this third aspect of the Messiah the Messiah, and Israel. Oh, what wonderful words of grace they are, found in Romans and chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 and verse 28. As touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Did you hear it? The gifts... And the calling of God are irrevocable. Where is or where has all this talk come from that the Jewish people have no future? That the natural seed of Abraham has been cast out and forsaken by God. What does it say, the word of God? It says, as touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election. They are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. No matter that they fell. No matter that they stumbled. No matter that they've become the offscouring of the world. No matter that their history is spattered with blood. God has not forsaken the Jewish people. There may have been long silent years, but they are not years of forsakenness. In the end, the anguish and the suffering of the Jewish people will turn to radiant glory. Take again the word. In Isaiah and chapter 59 and verse 19, we have, at verse 20, we have a most wonderful prophecy. Listen. And a redeemer will come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Did you hear it? Listen. And a redeemer will come to Zion unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Well, I don't think anyone has any problem there. Here is a messianic prophecy again. Was it fulfilled? Yes, it was fulfilled. When did the Redeemer come to Zion? When Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And when later he came to Jerusalem you remember? And when he laid down his life for their sake on Calvary. Wasn't that when the Redeemer came to Zion? Yes, it was. And who did he save? Those that turned from transgression in Jacob. Who were those who turned from transgression in Jacob? All the early believers. Don't think they were Gentiles. There was not a Gentile amongst them. They were all those who turned from transgression in Jacob. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they're just samples, the, the, the eleven apostles, uh, the others, Mark, I've added him in, Dr. Luke, another one, he may have been a Gentile, some think he might have been, we're not quite sure, um, but anyway, the hundred and twenty in the upper room who were they? They were all Jewish believers, they were all Jewish, what about the three thousand that were saved on the day of Pentecost? all Jewish believers? All of them. What about the 5,000 a few weeks later? all Jewish believers. People say, what have the Jews got to do with us? The whole foundation of the church was Jewish at the beginning, from the natural point, viewpoint. Then Samaria. Well, they were a mixture. Half Jewish and half not. But, I mean, they got saved. And then it happened at Caesarea. There was a day when the, when the Apostle Peter went to Caesarea. He had a vision, remember, on the top uh, of the roof. He went to Caesarea. And there, speaking in a Gentile, non-kosher household, having to stay the night there, probably wondering how, whether it was going to do his stomach much good, or whether... You know how we all feel. Most English people are the same when they go abroad. Especially if they go to the Orient. They wonder what on earth they're eating. So if you've been brought up kosher, naturally it's a very difficult thing to start eating non-kosher food. You wonder what it's doing to you. And suddenly suddenly, while he was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And he stopped preaching, I suppose. He must have gone on for a while, but when they were all falling over the place, and then they began to prophesy and speak in tongues, it was a real Pentecostal meeting. I mean, he looked at them and stopped and thought, oh, what on earth has happened? And then he must have thought, it's Pentecost. It's Pentecost all over again. Again. Every one of you with a Gentile background is here as a result of that little meeting, that house meeting in Caesarea that day. All of you. That's where it began. The apostle Peter was given the keys and almost unwittingly he put the key in the lock and while he was preaching he didn't know it. He would be twisting it, you see, and the door just opened. And before he could finish his message, they were in. The Gentiles were in. Whether Peter liked it or not, maybe if he'd had time, he would have shut the door very quickly and locked it again. (laughs) He might have thought, oh, the problems I'm going to have when I get back to Jerusalem. What about brother so-and-so and and brother so-and-so and and brother so-and-so and this committee and that committee? Oh, dear, dear, dear. He would have shut the door, but he didn't shut the door. Why? Because the Holy Spirit did it. Come back to the scripture. And a redeemer will come to Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. On that day in Caesarea, it wasn't those who were transgressors in Jacob. They were just transgressors. Now when you turn to Romans, you find a most remarkable thing because the prophet Paul quotes this scripture in Romans 11 in connection with the the salvation of Israel. And this is what he says. Listen to it. And so all Israel shall be saved, verse 26, even as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer. He shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob and this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins now did you have you noted the difference it's the same prophecy but it's diff- it's stated differently this is because it is of course the septuagint version but even so don't you think the lord watched over this And don't you think that perhaps into our New Testament has come this quotation from Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 20 in a slightly different way? This is not a Redeemer coming to Zion, but a Deliverer or Savior coming out of Zion. And he shall turn away ungodliness in Jacob. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. Don't get any fancy doctrines built on this. But what I'm trying to say is simply this. Surely, the work of the Messiah spans the whole of Jewish history. From the beginning of the exile till the end of this age. He came to Zion. Then, now, he'll come out of Zion. Who is the Zion of God? We are. Now it seems to me that this goes on in this same passage, for it says, verse 30, For as ye in time past were disobedient to God, but now obtained mercy by their disobedience, even so had these also now been disobedient, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now obtain mercy, for God hath shut up all unto disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. Now, I have to finish. Um, I have just a few more minutes, I believe. Now, let me just say, let me say it again in another way. Jesus referred to himself in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7 in this way. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. Did you hear that? That hath the key of David, he that openeth, and none shall shut, and shutteth, and none openeth. Do you know where this reference is? It's in Isaiah. Do you want to look at it? It is Isaiah chapter 22. Back to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22 and 23. Listen to this wonderful word. And the key of the house of David, will I lay upon his shoulder, and he shall open, And none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a throne of glory to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house. Well, 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 what does it mean? Key of David, let me put this. The Messiah is the key to Jewish history. He's the key of David. He opens every single secret and closes every single door upon all the sorrows. The key of David. There is no explanation to Jewish history other than something happened at the beginning of this era which brought about the destruction of the city, and the temple, and the dispersion of the Jewish people. To conclude from that, that the Messiah is finished with Israel, would be totally wrong, to be totally in error. For he himself said these words in Matthew 23 and verse 38 and 39, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. You shall no more see me, till ye shall say, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. In other words, somehow, at some time, something would happen to the Jewish people that would bring about a total change of attitude toward Jesus. Instead of cursing him, instead of ignoring him, they would welcome him in the name of the Lord. I wish that I could say a lot more about the footprints of the Messiah. One of the footprints of the Messiah was when a man called Theodore Herzl was born in Budapest. In 1860. Born in an assimilated Jewish family. Born with no religion really, although he was Jewish. He grew up, studied law, graduated in law, became a doctor of law, University of Vienna, argued in the debating societies, and then through very sad experiences came to the conclusion that there was only one answer to the Jewish people. They had got to recreate the Jewish nation. Only then would the Jewish people's future be secure. Only then would they be afforded the dignity given to other human beings. It was the footprint of the Messiah. He says himself, it came to him like a heavenly vision. He said it peeped over his shoulder at the comic journalistic work he did. When he slept, it was with him. When he walked, it was with him. When he ate, it was with him. It never left him, he said. He didn't live very long. He died at the early age of 44 of a broken heart. He went everywhere through Europe and Britain and European Russia, pleading with the leaders (coughs) of jury to listen to him. But they laughed him to scorn. For them, he was a vulgar rabblewager, a kind of mystical Jewish Jules Verne. In 1897, in September, in the casino, the Casino in Basel in Switzerland, he called a gathering together of Jewish leaders representing every facet of Jewish life. It was the first congress of the World Zionist Movement. From the moment it began, fury erupted over it, both in Jewish circles and in Christian circles. But on that day, Theodor Herzl stood up and said, This day we are here to lay the cornerstone of the foundation for the structure that will house the Jewish people. That night in his diary he wrote, This day I have founded the Jewish state. If I was to say this out loud, publicly, it would be greeted with howls of laughter and derision, but in five years, perhaps, certainly within 50, the whole world will know it. It was exactly 50 years, in November of 1947, that the United Nations Assembly voted by a two-thirds majority to recognize the right of the Jewish people to their existence. It was a footprint of the Messiah. Another footprint of the Messiah was in the midst of a ghastly and terrible, tragic war of 1914-1918 in which the flower of European and British manhood died on the battlefields of Europe. And in the midst of it, a letter was written by Her Majest- His Majesty's government. It was called the Balfour Declaration that His Majesty's government views with favor the founding of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. It was a footprint of the Messiah. In 1948, May of 1948, on the 14th of May, in Tel Aviv, David Ben-Gurion stood up to read the Declaration of Independence after 1,900 years of exile, the Jewish people had come home. It was the declaration of a recreated Jewish nation. It was another footprint of the Messiah. Not all the footprints of the Messiah in this last century have been so beautiful. The pogroms of Russia, of Ukraine, of Eastern Europe were also footprints of the Messiah because the Jews are an incredible people. They will not yield. Of all the peoples of the earth, they are perhaps one of the most obstinate of peoples. And the interesting thing is this, that when they would not move, God allowed those terrible pogroms to come with all the death and bloodshed and destruction. And what happened? You had the first Aliyah to Israel. The first waves of immigrants that went from Russia, from the Ukraine, from Poland to Israel. It was the footprint of the Messiah. The Holocaust was another dark footprint of the Messiah. For when six million Jews died in the most horrifying circumstances for no other reason than that they were Jewish by birth, many of them having only one parent Jewish, some having only one grandparent that was Jewish, it made no difference. The racial laws of Italy and of Germany and of Nazi-occupied Europe were so terrible that any single person with a trace of Jewish blood was to be destroyed like vermin. It was the final solution. Those that went into those gas chambers, their whole life in ashes, the hatred of Satan so vehement that their bodies were used as soap, their bones as fertilizer, their teeth as gold bars, their hair, a stuffing for upholstery. It was a dark footprint of the Messiah. For it was out of the Holocaust that Israel was born. There was no other way that Israel could be born than through the Holocaust. Footprints of the Messiah. When in a lightning move in June of 1967, the Israeli defense forces encircled Jerusalem, the old city, and then coming from the east, fought their way in and liberated the whole of Jerusalem and reunited it, it was another footprint of the Messiah. Jesus has said, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. It was yet another footprint of the Messiah. Dear when, there are still some more footprints before he's here. But for those who have ears to hear, they can hear his steps on the threshold. Each one of these events, and many others that I have not time to record, have been another footprint of the Messiah. I don't know all that lies ahead. I only know this, that there is going to come a day when the spirit of grace and supplication will be poured upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah, upon the house of David. And they shall look unto him whom they have pierced. And shall mourn for him. As for an only son. And be in bitterness for him as for a firstborn. It will be another footprint of the Messiah. Then will come wars. Terrible wars. Some of the wars will precede this. Others will follow it. Israel will not only survive. She will triumph. In the final great battle, when Jerusalem, half of it will fall, even that battle will be gloriously won, for the Messiah will come. And his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives in that day. Dear, dear people, what a wonderful subject we've had to uh, hold our attention in this evening time. Footprints of the Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. All these things we've talked about, they're all fulfilled in him. And many more that I have had not the time to talk about. But don't you think it is a most wonderful thing? Jesus was born King of the Jews. He lived as King of the Jews. And the only notice that was nailed up above his head was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And it was written in Latin, in Greek, and in Hebrew. No one could make any mistake. There has never been a Jewish king from that day to this, nor will there ever be, until he comes, whose right it is to take the throne. Jesus will come back as king of the Jews. He has never abdicated, and he has never retired. He will come back as king of the Jews, and he will come back as king of kings and Lord of lords. King, ruler of the kings of the earth. Footprints of the Messiah. I'm glad I belong to him. I'm glad I'm serving him. I'm glad I'm in living touch with him. I'm glad that the spirit of the Messiah is upon us. Praise God. We're in an inexorable, invincible movement, as I said earlier, of liberation. It will not end till he comes with the kingdom. Thank God.